Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, we are continuing our series called Exiles. We looked at Daniel chapter 3 the last two Sundays, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the bold faith that they had in a culture that was godless. Today, we're going to look at the story of Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse Number one, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire Empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. So they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. You can see there is a bit of jealousy and frustration among the officers and administrators, and they are trying to find some loophole, something in Daniel's character or his personality to eliminate him from his position of leadership. So we see in verse 6, So the administrators and high officers, they went to the king and they said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Verse 10, and this is what I really want you to see and really will be our jump-off point this morning. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, he knelt down, and if you have Bibles with you or if you can somehow highlight it on your phone, I would underline or highlight the phrase, as usual. He knelt down as usual, as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. And I would underline this, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive, it is living, it is powerful. It still speaks today. Holy Spirit, I ask and I pray that in the next few moments together as we unpack this maybe familiar story, I pray that we as your children would be challenged, we would be encouraged, we would be convicted to live a life of faith, a life that is trustworthy, a life that is responsible, a life that is routine in our discipline of serving you and honoring you. Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own this morning. 
but help me to communicate your word, your powerful, transforming word, with simplicity, with clarity, and with boldness today. And God, I pray that you would help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In his book, Vanishing Grace, Philip Yancey writes about a Muslim man who told Yancey, quote, I have read the entire Quran and can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. I have read the entire New Testament many times and can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live as a majority. Yancey then comments, quote, Christians best thrive as a minority, a counterculture. Historically, when Christians reach a majority, they have yielded to the temptations of power in ways that are clearly anti-gospel. According to J.D. Greer, when it comes to living in a hostile culture as exiles, Christians oftentimes will choose one direction or the other. Often they will either choose assimilation or separation. Assimilation is simply defined as gradually looking like everybody else. For example, it would be simply allowing the values of culture to become our values instead of the other way around. The opposite, though, of that, the opposite response that J.D. Greer refers to is that of separation. That is just simply um, isolating ourselves completely from the culture altogether and not being engaged in the culture that God has placed us in. He later will continue to write these words. He says, you see the world as evil. So believers should, quote, come out from among them and be ye separate. This was how J.D. Greer said, this is how I grew up. In the little independent Baptist school I went to, we had a Christian version of everything. We had a so-called shepherd's guide which was basically a catalog of all the Christian-owned businesses in the community so we could shop at those places. We had Christian sports leagues. Christians were expected to listen to their own kind of music with no drums, to style their hair a certain way. Long hair on boys, he said, was a sign that demons were at work in your heart, and to dress in distinctive ways. The idea was that the more isolated you were from the world, the more faithful you would be. Now, this response was notable in Daniel's day. Many of the exiles in Daniel's day quickly started adopting the way of Babylon. They were assimilating into that culture. Instead of being different, instead of having a bold faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, many of the, uh, of the Jews who were placed in Babylonian captivity, they just adopted the values and the ways of the godless culture. Many of them, you could not look at them and tell that they were different from the rest of the world. On the other hand, though, there were some who resisted the exile with such deep passion that they isolated themselves. They separated themselves altogether from culture, and all they did was pray for the destruction of the Babylon people. 
My recommendation or my suggestion to us this morning is that neither of those responses, assimilating into culture or isolating ourselves altogether, neither response is a proper response of one who claims to serve Jesus Christ. Living, I want you to see this, living the separated life, the isolated life, and simply keeping to ourselves might safeguard us. It might safeguard you individually, but it prevents us from evangelizing a lost world. If we live our lives so separated and so isolated from the culture, how are we going to engage a culture that needs Jesus Christ? And so separation is not the answer. On the flip side, becoming like the godless culture, assimilating into that culture, will not only put our relationship with Christ at risk, but then it will damage our witness for Jesus Christ. So as you can see, separation is not the answer. Isolation is not the answer because then you and I cannot do what God has called us to do and that is to be a light in a world that needs Jesus Christ. How are we to communicate the gospel if we are so isolated from a culture that needs Jesus? But on the flip, if we assimilate into the culture, if we become like the godless nation, if we become like the godlessness that exists around us, then your witness and my witness has no effectiveness whatsoever. So assimilation and separation is not what God is calling us to. So where is the balance? What kind of life are Christian exiles? And I would suggest to you, as I've said the last two weeks, we Christians, followers of Christ, we are living as exiles today in our culture. So what kind of life are Christian exiles called to live? And I think this is where we need to focus on this morning, and that is we are called to a life of transformation. We're not called to be separate or isolated. We're definitely not called to assimilate into the culture because I, I want people to look at me and see a difference. I don't want them to look at me and say, yeah, he, he looks pretty much like the rest of the world. That's not what God has called me to. It's not separation, not assimilation, but he has called you and me, followers of Christ, to a life of transformation. Learning to live as faithful servants of God in a world that is godless and in desperate need of Christ. Daniel's life as an exile in the land of Babylon, I believe, portrays beautifully how we ought to live as transformed believers in our own world as exiles. I wanna just give you kind of a quick overview of what's taking place, how we get to this spot in the story. So listen to me quickly this morning. First of all, this well-known story, Daniel in the lion's den, one of my favorites as a kid. Um, there's so many cool things that you can do with this story in children's church, and, and uh, certainly we don't bring in, you know, I know at sports camps sometimes we bring in live animals. We would never bring in a live lion um, in, in our midst, but, but there's some pretty cool things you can do with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It takes place, so I want you to see this. It takes place during a change in governmental leadership. 
When we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, Babylon was the the nation or the empire who was ruling and reigning, but now we're going to see a shift in governmental leadership. The end of Daniel 5 notes this change of leadership from from the Babylonian kingdom to the Persian kingdom. Look at Daniel 5. This is the very end of Daniel 5, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, he was killed. And then Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So at the end of chapter 5, there is a shift in political leadership. And now the Persians are the ones who are reigning and ruling. New structures, because of this change, new structures are being put into place with this change in leadership. Anytime you have a change of power or a change of leadership, there's always new laws that are put into place. There's new structures that are put into place. Uh, There's new rules that are put into place. And that is what is happening here in Daniel as well. Daniel's giftings, though, did not go unnoticed. and And because of that, this new kingdom gave Daniel a spot of prominence under this new regime. Look at Daniel chapter six again. Let's read it. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. He appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and to protect the king's interests. Daniel soon, look at this, he soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So all of this change, this structure is is being renovated. And in the meantime, Daniel, who is faithfully serving God, but also respecting the authority, he is being placed in a very high prominent position in this or under this Persian rule. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though, Daniel's rise to prominence in this foreign kingdom caused a little bit of jealousy among the natives, leading them to try to find some fault in his leadership. But he served the Persian king with incredible integrity. Look at what it says about Daniel in verse four. Read it again. Then the other administrators and high officers, they began searching for some fault in the way of Daniel, the way that he was handling government affairs. They couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, he was always responsible, and he was completely Trustworthy. I want you to see what they're doing. They, they are, they're, they're trying to uncover everything about Daniel. They're looking for every secret, everything. They're, they're watching him very closely to see how does he lead? Is he gonna mess up? What's his, what's his character look like? Is there some flaw in his ability to lead that would allow us an opportunity to go to the king and say, hey, your, your man Daniel, just he, he's, not, he, he's not coming through for you. But they look in every corner, they, they try to uncover everything about Daniel's life and they cannot find a single flaw in his character or in his leadership ability. They couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, he was always responsible, he was completely trustworthy. I mean, this guy, he dotted every T, or dotted every I, sorry, tried dotting a T, that doesn't work. He dotted every I and he crossed every T. He was faithful, he was responsible, he was organized, he did his job well and he did it with integrity. Because of that, these administrators who were trying to find anything, even the smallest thing to criticize or condemn him on, they could find nothing. So they came up with this solution. The only way that they were gonna find anything against him was to find some type of disconnect with his religion. Daniel 6 verse 5 says, they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection 
with the rules of his religion. So it is this development of this plot to remove Daniel that's going to pave the way for his faith, his routine faith, to be on display and allow him to live a transformed life. Daniel did not assimilate into the culture. Daniel did not separate himself from the culture. Instead, he lived a transformed life, and that was a result of his routine faith, his routine relationship with Jesus Christ. I wanna talk about just four principles that we need to embrace if we're gonna live this transformed life today in a godless culture, in a place that desperately needs Jesus. Number one, a Christ-exalting life and one that faithfully and routinely pursues God will be noticed. And sometimes that relationship will be coveted even by ungodly people. I want you to see that, and I want that to resonate with you for just a moment. A Christ-exalting life, someone who lives that transformed life, one that faithfully and routinely pursues God, the world will notice And I can tell you this morning that even the ungodly will covet what they may not know what you have. They may not know the dynamics of that relationship, but they will see something in you so much so that they will covet or long for what you have. Let me kind of unpack that this morning. The officers and administrators, they noticed Daniel. They saw his success in a foreign land. They even noticed that he was flawless in his character and in his professional lifestyle. I want you to know that Daniel was not intentionally flaunting his position. He didn't go around to the other officers and administrators and say, hey, look at me, I got the position, you don't, and rub it in their face. Daniel was not that kind of man. He served with integrity, he served with humility, he did his job that he was called to do, and he was faithful in every aspect of his work. He didn't flaunt that position at all. But his professional success was reason for jealousy among the native people. They they were looking for some type of political corruption or some other character flaw in Daniel because they see this man who is an outsider. He is a Jew. He came from another land and they brought him here uh, to initially Babylon and eventually Persia and they're frustrated because there's this outsider that's gonna be given the entire kingdom or have rule over the entire kingdom and they don't want to have anything to do with that. So they're gonna look for any type of corruption or flaw in this man's leadership to try to eliminate him from his position. But what's interesting is they wanted what Daniel had. They, he was a respected leader in the kingdom. But what's interesting is they wanted his position when in reality they should have been coveting his godly relationship. They were coveting what Daniel had. They wanted that position of prominence. They wanted him removed from the throne so that that, that, that somebody else, a local, a native, could take that position of leadership. They wanted what he had, but in reality, they should have really been coveting the relationship with God that Daniel had, something much deeper. I would suggest to us, myself included, we need to do often self-checks and make certain that we aren't more interested in being noticed and having positions of honor instead of enjoying a relationship with God. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes as you begin to receive accolades, sometimes when people begin to compliment you and encourage you, next thing you know, there is this kind of humanness or humanity inside of us that that starts longing to be noticed, 
It starts longing to, to receive the accolades and the encouragement. But I, I would suggest that as, as hum, human beings, as sinful human beings who fall short on a, on a regular basis, we need to do self-checks and, and ask the Holy Spirit to, to look inside our heart and make certain that, that our, our longing is for him and not to be noticed by others. I think that's why David prays the prayer in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Like, See if there's anything in my heart, anything that doesn't line up with you. We need to do those self-checks and make certain that our desire is for God not to be noticed. And Daniel had it right. Daniel wasn't flaunting his position, but these guys, they were coveting what Daniel had, but they were coveting the very wrong thing. In their quest to find fault with Daniel, What's interesting is, you know, they're, they're trying to uncover every secret thing about his life. So they're, they're watching him very carefully. They're following him. I mean, it's probably a little creepy because they're like, you know, following him every place he goes to. And, and they're trying to watch what he does and trying to examine his life, how he leads and, and, and what he does in the evening when he goes home. And so in their quest to find fault with Daniel, they actually took notice of some of his routines, his habits and his godly character. Look at Daniel chapter six, verse four. It says, then the other administrators, high officers, they began searching for some fault in the way that he was handling government affairs. They couldn't find anything. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. They didn't see any corruption. They only saw trustworthy character and godly responsibility. Daniel's religious convictions, they were not a secret. He was unashamed in his allegiance to God. He was so unashamed that, that his relationship with God was on public display for people to see. It was not a secret. He was not trying to hide out. He was not trying to just keep it to himself. He was unashamed. He loved God, and he wanted other people to know it as well. Later, even the king himself, we'll see at the end of the story, the king is noted as even giving respect to Daniel's God and his ability to rescue Daniel. He's living this Christ-exalting life there are natives that are longing for what he has, even though they're longing for the wrong thing. But in the end, because of his public display of his relationship with God, because he was unashamed in his allegiance, even a godless king pays respect to the God that Daniel serves. Daniel chapter six, verses 19 through 20. Very early the next morning, the king got up. This is after Daniel's been placed in the, the den of lions and he hurries out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? So because of Daniel's routine transformed life and his relationship with God, it was so put on display that even even a godless king took notice and paid respect to the God that he served. Daniel's godly character was noticed by even the most ungodly individuals. And it became an inroad for some to consider their own life. Here's what I want us to glean from that this morning. People will take notice of how we, especially Christ followers, live our lives. People will watch People will try to find things to criticize. People will try to find things to condemn. They, they watch carefully. They notice. You may not think anybody notice, notices what you say or what you do. You may think no one's paying attention. But people will take notice of how we live our lives. So my question for us this morning is this. What do people notice about my life? Do they see a life that reflects faithful service to Christ, godly integrity, and is completely trustworthy? 
Do they see someone who, is, who always reflects the heart and character of Christ? Because how I live my life, it communicates a message to a world that is lost. So my question for us, church, is what message is our life communicating to a lost world that needs Jesus? How we live our life does matter. What we say in the heat of the moment does matter. Because what we say or what we do or how we live our lives at work, at home, at school, how we live our lives matter because people will take notice. So what do they see? What do they see in you? What do they see in me? What do they see in us? What message are we communicating? I would encourage us to evaluate, maybe reevaluate some of the aspects of our life so that when people take notice of me, they are being pointed to Christ. Paul said it best. We talked about it in Philippians chapter one. We are to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that we are to be his ambassadors. That means we are to represent you all believers. We are to represent a heavenly kingdom in this world. We are to be his ambassadors to a world that desperately needs Jesus. So how well are we doing at being ambassadors for Christ? How well are we living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I believe that's why we all need to continue to do those self-checks and ask ourselves, what message is my life communicating to my family at home, to my coworkers, to those in the community, to those that I go to school with, that I rub shoulders with, to those in the hallway in the passing period? What message is my life communicating to others around me? This is what it looks like to live as one who seeks to transform culture and not assimilate into it or hide from it. Number two, we need to make a matter of consistent routine time in God's presence. This is very simple. Probably don't have to spend a lot of time here, but, but this is important. This is valuable. We believers, we need to make a matter of consistent routine time in God's presence. Look at Daniel 6, verse 10. It says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home. He knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. The only fault that they could find of Daniel was his consistent prayer life. That's incredible. If that's the only fault they could find, that he was consistent in his prayer life, good for Daniel. I hope that's the only fault somebody else can find in me, the consistency of my time in God's presence. They, they convinced the king, though, because of this. Remember, they're trying to find some way to eliminate Daniel, and the only thing they can find about his religious routine is that he prayed three times a day, and he was consistent in that. So what did they do? They convinced the king to sign the strict decree, stating that for 30 days, no one must pray to anyone but the king. And to break this law would, would, result, um, would result being thrown into the lion's den. Knowing that Daniel would not relent from his prayer routine, they were trying to do whatever they could to eliminate them. And this is Daniel's response to the decree. He knew it. He knew that the law had been signed. He knew that the king had issued the decree. But what did Daniel do anyways? He kept praying as he had always done. He was consistent in his routine. He made zero excuses. He didn't say, okay, you know what? For 30 days, I'll just secretly pray in my head so that nobody sees me or knows what I'm doing. No, he did what he always did. He went up to his upstairs room. He opened the windows to Jerusalem and he continued to pray. He made zero excuses even when his life was threatened and his routine remained the same. Time in God's presence must not be omitted from one's life. And I believe time in God's presence is certainly valid ground here for Daniel 
to refuse to obey the civil law that was placed in order. A civil law prohibiting him from spending time in God's presence would not alter his routine. This decree that, that the king signed, yes, he was respectful to the king. Yes, he, he honored the king. Yes, he did what he was asked to do when it came to his, his leadership position. But when it came time for his own relationship with God to, to be put on display, he was going to serve God. He continued praying upstairs toward Jerusalem, which was the place of the temple. And he did it three times a day, as was his custom. So how can, just, just work with me for a second, how can Daniel's actions be justified with scripture elsewhere that states to obey civil authority. Romans chapter 13, verses one and two, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authorities have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. So how do we justify that? Obviously, Daniel didn't have that portion of scripture yet, so this is still in the Old Testament. So yes, you could argue he didn't have Paul's words in Romans uh, chapter 13, but how do, we, how do we wrestle with Daniel's actions in relationship to Romans 13? The simple solution is this, the law of God is higher than the law of man. So when the two laws conflicted, when he was told to stop spending time in the presence of God, to stop praying and to only pray to the king, which would have been idolatry, for Daniel and anybody that served God, he recognized that his ultimate authority was to God. We see this in the New Testament as well, Acts chapter five, verse 29. You know, Peter was preaching the gospel and they were praying and, and doing miracles. They were told to stop, but Peter and the apostles, they replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Now, kids or teenagers or adults who have you know, employers that you work for. This is not a verse that says I can go do whatever I want to do, all right? That is not what I'm saying at all. But here in the context of Daniel's life, what we see is that the law of God, his time in God's presence was being conflicted with this command to pray to a godless king. Stephen Miller said, today Christians are being called upon to make difficult ethical choices as the world becomes more and more secular and sinful believers will increasingly find themselves taking stands that are unpopular and positions that may even violate the law of the, of the land. Like Daniel, do we even have a consistent routine that includes time in God's presence? I just wanna to speak to you very pastorally this morning and, and, and honestly ask you that question. Do you have a consistent routine that includes spending time in God's presence? I hope you all do. If you don't, it's not too late to start. We can start now. It's important to have a meeting place and a meeting time with God. Yes, we can approach God anytime. Yes, we have access to him, whether we're in the car, whether we're at work, whether we're mowing the lawn, whether we're at school in math class, wherever we're at, we still have access to God. That does not change. But I would encourage you, for the sake of developing that rhythm and that routine, I would encourage you to have a meeting place and a meeting time where you can meet with God. Daniel did three times a day. He went up to his upstairs rooms, he opened the, the windows and he faced Jerusalem and he began to pray three times every single day. Prioritize this meeting because it trumps anything and everything else you will ever do. Don't allow outside threats or distractions to keep you from this time with God and don't forfeit routine gatherings in God's presence. Time in his presence is what allows us to live a transformed life in a godless culture and keeps us from becoming like the world or hiding from it. Number three, I'll get these last two too quickly and we'll be done. 
Prioritizing time with God on a daily basis will produce a spirit of complete trust and confidence in every circumstance. Daniel, I want you to see this. Daniel was put in a very hard, difficult place. His refusal to stop praying landed him a one-way ticket to the lion's den. He was left to be eaten alive. Darius himself, the king, was certainly concerned for Daniel, Daniel, and he was hopeful that he would be delivered from this fate. And we see from Scripture that he was rescued from the lions, and he demonstrated impeccable trust in God, and he was declared innocent. Daniel chapter 6, verses 21 and 23 through 23, Daniel answered, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den, and not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. This response in this complete trust that Daniel had in his God's ability to save and rescue him was a byproduct of his routine time in God's presence. Because he went up to his room three times a day and opened the windows and prayed to his God, and because that was part of his rhythm and his routine, because he had a meeting time with God, because he had a place where he could draw near to God, that enabled him, even in a very hard place, that enabled him to have impeccable trust. He didn't waver. He didn't make excuses. He just simply trusted in his God. It was here in this routine time with God where he learned the character of God. When we spend time in God's word, when we spend time in worship, when we spend time in prayer, we're going to get a revelation of the character of God. When we spend time in his presence, it's here where we learn to trust him. It's here where we learn to submit to God's plans. That's why Paul is able to say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So my question for us is, do we have this type of trust and confidence in God? In my hard places, am I trying to find solutions Get out on my own, or am I simply trusting the unchanging, unwavering character of God? As exiles, we are called to trust God, which will result in a transformed life. And finally, number four, our spiritual routines will produce spiritual prosperous lives that will benefit the kingdom of God. Look at verses 25 through 28. King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people and performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel's religious routine of time in God's presence allowed him to navigate the challenges of the exiled life. But it also brought him prosperity in this foreign land and even changed the mindset of those who were godless. King Darius declared throughout the kingdom that the God of Daniel must be feared, which was an act of transformation that took place. Had Daniel assimilated into the culture, had he became like the the people of, of the Persian kingdom, this kingdom impact would have been non-existent. Or had Daniel separated himself from the culture? Had he prayed silently up in his room and made certain that nobody saw him or or heard him, then who would have demonstrated such a godly influence? Daniel's willingness to live a transformed life, not an assimilated life or or a separated life, 
this life of transformation put his trust in God on display and made a difference for the kingdom. Daniel himself experienced prosperity in this foreign land. Prosperity for followers of Christ may look different from a worldly from worldly prosperity, but listen, kingdom prosperity far outweighs anything the world can offer. It is endless. It is completely valuable. So my final question for us is this. What spiritual routines and rhythms do we have in place that will allow you and me to live the transformed life, not the assimilated life, and not the separated or isolated life? What routines and rhythms do we have in place where we can meet with God, where we can experience his presence, where we can come to know his power, where we can come to experience his goodness and faithfulness. What does it look like for you to worship outside of Sunday morning? What does it look like for you to spend time in God's presence? Where is that meeting place? And if we can, like Daniel, have that rhythm, have that routine, that will change our perspective. That will begin to change the way that we look at things or how we see things. That will begin to then allow us to live in this godless culture. It will allow us to live transformed lives where we can make a difference for the kingdom of God. Worship team, if you would come, would you stand with me this morning? This type of routine faith, like Daniel, I believe that it can bring kingdom transformation. Therefore, these practices, time in prayer, time in worship, time in his word, these practices cannot be ignored. So the question that I want to ask all of us this morning is what kind of life am I living? My walk in the line of assimilation is my goal just to fit in with the culture, to look like the rest of the world, to adopt the values of our culture? Or have I taken more of the approach that I, I know the, the culture and the world is, is godless, it's hard, so I'm just gonna separate myself altogether? I would suggest to you that neither is a viable option. For one, our witness will be damaged. And the other, we will have no witness. If we assimilate into the culture, our witness is ruined. But if we isolate ourselves from the culture, we have no witness at all. But I would encourage us to follow the example of Daniel. He didn't assimilate and he didn't separate. Daniel simply lived a transformed life. He spent time in God's presence. Time in his presence enabled him to trust God, enabled him to know the character of God, enabled him to serve God faithfully, even, even in hard places, even when it didn't make sense. What kind of life, what kind of life are we living? Because our life will communicate a message. And what message are we communicating to our world? The story we're called to tell and live and die by is one of risk confronted, death embraced. What's more, Jesus calls us to walk the narrow way, take up a cross with him daily. It's terribly risky business. Ask that bright company of martyrs that quite recklessly parted with goods 
security, and life itself, preferring to be faithful in death rather than safe in life. Is my life one that is worth mimicking? And is, it, and is my life one that will bring kingdom transformation? Would you